of you well know, I was just in India uh, just uh, last month, and I, I had the opportunity to interact with many different Indian pastors. And uh, I believe my experience wasn't just um, relative to India, but it's everywhere. And I, I got bombarded by requests from pastors and missionaries for financial requests time and time again. Uh, many of the pastors are very underpaid, as are their ministries. Uh, their families are, are very, having a very hard time surviving. And yet, God is still working through them. They are very, very faithful. But I, I, as I thought about their question, I'm, I, I'm reminded that the needs aren't quite so different between places. Finances are, seem to be on our, our minds a lot of the time. We have a lot of struggle. What do we do with our job? Whether we, what do we do for this? How can we afford that? And money is at the forefront of our minds. Even at this last election proved, there, it's, that played a huge part. People voted according to what's going on in the economy. Uh, needing jobs and minimum wage and all of these different things are, are playing in people's minds. We see that money is a huge, huge thing in our everyday lives. Just as the, the song used to say, money, 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 money makes the world go around. And it's very, very true. Um, and we talk about money, and sometimes when we, we talk about money, we separate money from our spiritual life. And we think that they're two separate things. We don't want to talk about it. You can talk about all about this, but don't talk about that. And we see within Scripture time and time again that money is a, an intensely spiritual issue. Because how we spend our money and how we look and view money reveals a great deal of our relationship with God. And so we, we can see this time and time again through Scripture. Uh, I'm just going to throw out some verses. You don't need to look them up. But we can see it in Matthew chapter 6 where Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Or 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, and I'm sure that many of us have heard this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. He goes on, It is through the craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Or consider the sober warning of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, sa- for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, what are these verses saying to us? Is that the reality is, is money can be a tool or a tyrant. It can be something that we, we love and treasure, or it can something that can lead us to other things. We have to understand that we are stewards of everything that he's entrusted to our care. Now, the, re, the thing is, though, is many of us think, well, those are for those who have money. I don't have any money. I'm broke as a joke. My wallet is made out of onion leather. Every time I open it, I cry. Okay, I think many of us have that idea in our mind that we don't have any money, so how can I talk about giving any money? I mean, we could be un- unemployed or underemployed. We could be struggling just to meet our bills. We could be college students. We could be on disability. It could be many different things. We could be on Social Security, any of these different things. And we think to ourselves, I can't afford to do it. Well, the reality is, scripturally, you can't afford not to. And that God has called us all to be stewards, that it's not someone else's responsibility, that it's our responsibility. That if you bear the name of Christian, it is your responsibility. 
Your responsibility. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to fund everything. It means that you are a steward of everything that God has entrusted to your care. And that's what we're going to look at today to find out how it's our responsibility to give unto the Lord that his mission might be furthered across the entire world. Because God has blessed us here in the United States of America. More than, more than so many other countries. And other countries notice that. And quite honestly, as I'm walking through India, I realized that they looked at us as millionaires. Uh, last time that I was there with uh, Scott Cap, that many of you know, uh, Scott was showing a picture on his iPad of his family uh, just to many of the different pastors there. And in the background was his home and his cars. And many of them were asking, they're like, wait, that's your house? Wow. And you have a car? He goes, I have two cars. You have two cars? They couldn't believe that. And we have a tendency to compare ourselves to other wealthy people, not realizing that we are wealthy according to the world's standards. And God has entrusted us with that task, with that wealth, for a reason. And we're going to be called to give an account for everything that he's entrusted to our care. And I pray that we are faithful with that. So today, as we enter into this message, I have a few questions that I want us to keep in the forefront of our minds. Is my money a tool? Or is my money a tyrant? How am I using God's money for his glory? Those are the three questions I want us to have in, my, in our minds. Is my money a tool? Is it a tyrant? And what am I doing with God's money to further his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, we do come into your presence asking you to speak to us about this very important topic. Lord, we are so grateful that you have called us from all tribes and tongues from all over the world. And yet, Lord, we know that you have brought us to this place and have blessed us to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Lord, we can't give to everyone. We can't give to everything. But we know that we give to you that your name might resound across the heavens, that people might Hear the name of Jesus, even if it just means one. Let it be so. But let us be faithful with the little that you've given us, and that you might use it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's jump right into our text. We're going to be walking through this rather quickly. First of all, the first point that I want you to write down, and you're going to see it obviously in Spanish. I'm not going to try to butcher Spanish. I took two years of high school Spanish, and me hablo español un poquito. It's about it. Donde está el baño, por favor? That's about the extent of my Spanish. So um, just bear with me as you see the translation up on the board. Um, so before we get into our text, I want to make sure that we do lay down a firm foundation. We need to get God's perspective on giving. That's what I want you to write down. God's perspective on giving or generosity. Now, the scripture tells us very, very just blatantly that God is the supplier of all that we have. God is the supplier of all that we have. That he has given us wealth. He has blessed us with wealth and the ability to have wealth. Not just wealth financially, but the ability to do the job that you do. You didn't give yourself the ability to understand. You didn't give yourself the intelligence to comprehend, to do numbers or to translate or do tasks. God gave you that ability. He has blessed you with that ability that not everyone has, by the way. And if you've grown up here in the U.S., then you are a byproduct of our educational system, good or bad. 
Which means, though, that you've been taught, hopefully, to read, to write, to do basic things. Now, we think, oh, that's just, that's a given. It's not. Not over the world. I, I, I told you uh, a, a couple weeks ago that I had the opportunity to visit Freedom Firm. Uh, these are girls that had been rescued from brothels. They were minor girls that had been rescued from prostitution. They had been sex trafficked. These are minors. And these girls had been sometimes uh, dedicated to false gods for temple prostitution when they are babies, and then they go off to service uh, the Hindu priests in this uh, basically sanctified pedophilia. And then there are those whose parents lease them out for this task, which is horrendous. But as I'm standing in front of these girls, about 27 girls, I was speechless because I'm looking at them, and I realize, and I'm talking to uh, uh, Catherine Raja, uh, Evangeline's sister, and I said, do these girls know how to read and write? She goes, no, they don't know how to read and write. They don't know how to do basic things. And it's all over the world. And we think it's just basic what we have. It's not. It's not. God has blessed us to be a blessing to other people. As we see within the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 8, verse 17 through 18, and you can look that up on page 153 in a pew Bible if you have one, or if you can find it, you're not that familiar, the book of Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, chapter 8, God is speaking to the people, and he says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You should remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is to this day. Though it's addressed to the nation of Israel, there is still a very important principle that we can see, that God has blessed us and given us the ability to have and make wealth. He's the supplier of all that we have. He is. He is the supplier of all that we have, And then we have to understand that we are stewards of all that he gives. We are stewards of all that he gives to us. That God is going to hold us to an account. That he has blessed us just to hoard and have it for ourselves? No. Now, it's not that I'm saying to you that you should feel guilty for having nice things or going on vacations. I'm not saying that at all. They are gifts to us that are to be enjoyed, but we have to also understand that we are stewards of what he's entrusted to our care. And we need to use it wisely. Not that we can't enjoy it, but that enjoyment has to take its place next to the primary means of stewardship. That God has called us to give unto him first. It's interesting. I like how one man put it. He goes, uh, some man was complaining about tithing. And he said, 10%. Can you believe that? That he wants 10%? And another man looked at him and said, wow, can you believe that God lets us keep 90%? Perspective. 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 We have to have God's perspective on this, that we understand that we are stewards of all that we give. Now, if we're stewards of what God supplies, then we need to understand the guiding principles about giving or generosity. Now, this is where we're going to really jump into our text. I want to give you a preliminary foundation. Now, I want us to really hone of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. Because Paul is giving us some guiding principles or principles to guide us on how we, our generosity or how we give. 
Now, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. This was a very blessed church financially. Uh, They had a lot of wealth within this church, but yet the church was very dysfunctional. There was a lot of disunity. There was an argument over spiritual gifts. There was a lack of love. There was a questioning over Paul's apostolic authority and whether he had the power to give direction and instruction to them. And uh, Paul is writing to them. This is the second letter that he is writing to them. And he had founded this church. He had a great love for them. And in spite of how messed up they were, he, he continued to love them. And in his second visit, he made a, a few visits to the church. In the second visit to the church, some leaders openly rebelled and questioned his qualifications for ministry and any right he had to teach or direct them. Now, after the second visit, he's quite troubled by it. He goes to Ephesus, which is in Turkey, and, and um, from there, he's, he, he's bothered by it. God prompts him to write a letter, um, and he sends it by the hand of Titus to Corinth. And Titus is sent on a mission to clean up the mess that's going on in Corinth. And he, to correct the scandal and division within the church. And along with Titus, he, he gave this tearful, and it's a severe letter, rebuking them for the rebellion, which, and this letter had been lost. Because Paul had written four letters to the Corinthians, two had been lost, two were spirit-inspired that we have in our Bibles today. Now this letter warned the church they would be judged if they didn't repent of their sin. And he goes on to say um, that... There was, there was still a rebellious faction who continually rejected his authority, and they needed to repent of it. And in response to this, he wrote 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. as He's back in Greece, and he was preparing for his third visit to the church. So he had visited the church, he'd founded the church, he'd visited, he'd gone to Ephesus, he'd written this letter that was lost. He goes to Macedonia, and he's writing the second letter to them. Actually, it's probably the fourth letter to them, but it's a, we call it 2 Corinthians. And he's going back to visit the Corinthians on his way to Jerusalem. Now, the saints in Jerusalem are having a really hard time. They're in the midst of a huge financial crisis. We don't know the details of what's going on, but they're struggling. The economy is collapsing. The church is struggling. Paul wants to help them. And as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, he's encouraging them to help alleviate the burden of the saints, um, that the struggle that the church in Jerusalem is going through. And so he is highlighting the devotion and sacrifice of the Macedonian churches. Now there are three Macedonian churches. The one at Philippi, the one at Berea, and the one at Thessalonica. And although these three churches were not as blessed financially as the Corinthian church had been, their generosity put the Corinthians to shame. So he's shaming them. He's saying, these churches are giving out of their poverty. You guys got money, and you're not doing anything for them. So look at verse 1. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's saying that these people understand that they have been saved by grace. God's grace and his gift of salvation has been poured out on these churches of Macedonia and it's the language here, it's a perfect passive participle that it emphasizes the state or condition of something with ongoing results. That they had been saved, they'd experienced the, the salvation of Christ, they are transformed by it, and now they are seeking to honor God and use the resources that God has blessed them with to further his kingdom. 
So if we, we have to understand anything about these guiding principles, that we understand, first of all, this, that it's based on God's grace. That's letter A in your notes. Write that down. That it's God's grace to us. Any giving that we give is not to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor in Christ Jesus. This is a response to that, a joyous thankfulness to realize what we have been saved from, to realize how we have been spared from death. We want to give back. We want to praise God for that, that God's grace has been poured out unto us. It reminds me of a dear friend of mine that once he came to salvation in Christ, his first question was, is, where do I give? Where do I give? What do, I, what do I have to do? Where do I give my money to? I want to honor God because he has saved and transformed me. Now let's look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Into verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. I want to, Paul doesn't lay out the exact amount that they gave. He doesn't say that they all had to give a tithe. What he's saying there, it's about the attitude, not the amount. What is the attitude of your heart? Some people say, well, what's the amount? Just let me be done with it. No, it's about your heart before God. God is always about the heart. I was speaking to a Muslim friend of mine this past week. We have tea together. I'm sharing Christ with him. And he kept asking me questions about the New Testament. And he said that your Bible doesn't lay out specifics on how to do certain things. I said, there are some specifics that God lays out. Yes, there are. But God is always about the heart. He doesn't say just check this box, check that box, and check this. He wants your heart. And he stopped and he looked at me and he said, really? And I said, yes, God wants your heart. That's where we differ. It's not about going through the motions. It's about giving God your heart. It's, not about, the, it's about the attitude, not the exact amount. Because amount. God has given himself, given his son for our sins, and how do we respond? As we've been looking at our finances as a church, we've noticed this disturbing trend, as I mentioned earlier. People are not being generous. I understand that there are circumstances. I've been there. I've lived in a friend's basement. I've been homeless. But even then, with the little we have, we gave unto the Lord. Now notice what the Macedonians were going through. They were going through a severe test of affliction, but there was to them an abundance of joy. It wasn't based on their circumstances. See, God loves a cheerful giver. If we were to look over just one page on 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. And that's on page 968 in your pew Bible. If you have one, just flip the page. He says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, I interacted with the Eastern Orthodox Church at one time. And as I was interacting with them in New England, I was surprised at one thing that came about, that if you die and you're a member of the church and you not, have not paid up your tithes and your offerings, they won't bury you. That they hold you hostage to that until you pay up what you owe. Now, we don't have that. Because here, Paul says, it's not under compulsion, but it's, under, it's willingly. We're not forced to. We do it out of an overflow of our heart. Because if God has our heart, we're going to want to give back to him. There are no Ebenezer Scrooges in the church. We're to give... Make sure that our attitude is right. Not, it is not about the exact amount. And according to their means, notice that, and beyond 
their means. I like how C.S. Lewis put it. He said it this, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. It's a good rule. It's a good rule. We can give more than we can spare. Now I can see this is where people get testy. Because we don't want, we want to hold on. It's our money. You know, we talk about tithes. Some of us will give tithe. We give faithfully. We tithe faithfully. And we think that that's it. You know, in the Old Testament, that um, many see a clear example of how we were to give. And that was the tithe or 10% of one's income. But after working, I was speaking with um, one of the professors of Moody Bible Institute. who was head of the department at Moody for a while. Um, I've come to the conclusion that it's not as clear as many would make it out to be. Matter of fact, there are actually three tithes in the Old Testament. And rather than 10%, it was more likely 30 to 40% that was given to the Lord. And that was under the law. We're no longer under the Old Testament law. We are now under grace. So where law abounds, grace abounds all the more. Uh, in other words, it's not about how much we have to give, but how much we are able to keep. We give unto the Lord. Now, God wants us to realize that it's all His, that we're stewards, and we will be asked to give an account. So we see then it's about our faith, not our finances. Our faith, not our finances. Look at verse 3 again. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. It was beyond their ability, because they were casting themselves on God. They were saying that God is behind it, we're giving unto Him, and it's an act of faith. It's beyond our means. We can't afford to do it, but we feel God calling us to do it. We need to do it. We need to honor God with our finances. It's about our faith, not our finances. Now, in Malachi chapter 3, we realize and see what happened to the, the Israelites when they failed to give to God what was his. Now, they're going to use the term tithes and offerings here. But in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3 through 12, found on page 802, we read this. God says to them, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The people were robbing God. Now, there's some dumb stuff that I've done in my life. I'm sure that many of you can testify about doing dumb stuff. When I was a junior in high school, in my small town of 2,100 people, we came up with a bright idea, and in my small town, at, at, during the Halloween season, there was a common practice called soaping. Anyone ever done that? No? Soaping or TPing? Someone's home? Okay. In my hometown, we would soap a person's car or house. You take bars of soap, and you put soap on their car. It all washes up. But you just soap the car. For whatever reason, in, our, in my 17-year-old brain... I thought it was wise to soap the local police station. Like I said, a 17-year-old brain. And uh, in my small town, it was a little bit like watching um, Andy Griffith's show. 
okay? Police officers were a little bit like Barney Fife, for those that are familiar with the American TV show Andy Griffith. And so we knew that there were times where the police would not be in the police station. And we were ready to go. Uh, me and two of my other friends, we went into the alley of the police station, and we made sure that we saw the police car pull off. There was only uh, one or two officers ever on duty. Hardly anyone was ever in the station. So we decided to see the car pull off. We decided to get out of the car, and there was a young lady with us. And uh, she said she was going to go, and then she said she wasn't going to go. We get out of the car thinking she's not going with us, slam the door, not realizing that her foot was caught. She was getting out of the car, and her foot was caught in the car door. And as she's crying in tears, we're like, what do we do now? We're like, we don't have a lot of time. She's like, just go. And she starts going with us limping because the other car was also our getaway car. So they, they drove up to the front ready to catch us so we could drive off. All right. So um, as we're soaping the police station and laughing to ourselves in our little small town where we, we know everyone, it's just not as big of an illegal deal in such a small town. And as I, we're doing it, and the girl's limping and crying and doing this, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe this wasn't a good idea after all at that moment in time. As we, uh, we finish soaping, we get in the car, and she's delayed because she's hurt. We help her limp into the car. When the police car pulls up, <laughs> they see us. They gradually pull us over, very nicely so, and they said, you guys aren't too bright. <laughs> They said, and they're laughing to themselves. They're like, just come on back and clean it off. So they did. We did it. And the the police officers laughed as we did it because we knew them. Again, it was a small town. But I learned something. It's not wise to soap a police station. It's just certain things you don't do to certain people, right? Just certain things you don't do. And there's there's the same with God. You know, you don't mess with the local police station. You don't mess with God. You don't rob God. That's not the person you want to rob. It really isn't. And when we keep back things for ourselves, it's in essence a sin of not just commission, but omission, doing what God has made us and purposed us to do. We see then that it's about our faith, not our finances. I like how Mother Teresa put it. If you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. I like that. If you give what you do not need, it's really not giving. See, what Paul is, Paul doesn't give us the standard for giving. He gives us the standard of giving. He doesn't give us the standard for giving. He gives us the standard of giving. Meaning that he's not saying you've got to give the 10%. We see that in we're not under law, we're under grace. But we were, again, grace should abound all the more. They're giving out of their extreme poverty means that they went down to the depth. They had hit rock bottom. History shows that many in the Roman Empire who were urban dwellers seem to have been very poor, similar to those in our day, having to pay high taxes and high rent and high food prices. See, Paul is saying it's about our commitment, not our circumstances. It's about our commitment, not our circumstances. Look at verse 2. A severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
Now, the words have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The wording here, it's an aorist indicative active, meaning that they're currently overflowing with generosity or liberality in their giving. It's an undis- undisclosed period of time, but it's the, the continual attitude of their heart. It indicates a single-mindedness, a focus with no hint of duplicity. They wanted to give, not because of some evil motive as to what they might get or how others might see them. You know, recently, my wife and I, we have been looking into purchasing a home. And we had the opportunity, this one man heard about our story when we were homeless five years ago. He had a home that he was willing to sell us at a very low price. As we were speaking, um, it was way below market value. And as we were speaking to him, uh, Kathy Brothers, who was our realtor, she goes, I just have to ask you this question. He kept telling he was a devout Catholic, that he went to Mass every day. She goes, I need to know from you for sure why you're offering this price of a home to them. Is it because you think by giving it to this pastor that you will have a less time in purgatory? I need to know that. Because he thought, he had that thought in his mind. If I do good and I give, then I'll have less time in purgatory. And he said, fortunately, he said no. Now, it ended up not being the right deal for our family. We backed out of the deal. And I appreciated his generosity, but I learned a very key concept that many do think that. That if they give back to God, that will help them keep them from hell and purgatory. But that's not what the Bible is talking about here. That if we have Christ, it is finished. It is finished. We can't earn or buy God's favor that we have it in Christ. And our life should be a loving offering in response to that. Not that we can earn it. We already have it. It's living our life in the light of it. And it's about our commitment to him, not our circumstances. But we can see that, that, that giving is also about our desire, not a demand. Desire, not a demand. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, I've been in pastoral ministry um, 15, 16 years, give or take. I've never once, not once, had anyone beg me to give. Not once. It's usually the opposite factor. We have to beg people. And here they're begging for a participation in the gospel. They had a desire. It wasn't a demand. It was a desire that they had, that God had placed in them to further the name of Christ. And the wording here indicates that they voluntarily and spontaneously gave. No one made them give. They chose to give without request and without coercion. Because their love for God overflowed in joy, they desired to do more. And their love for God overflowed to others. Through them, we see that giving is about our participation in the gospel, not our prosperity. This is where many of these other, we see these word of faith and prosperity gospel things that have messed it all up. Here it's an opportunity to further the name of Christ, not to get or give so you can get a Mercedes. Or get, get this or get that. It's to get God himself. To understand that we already have him, actually, in Christ. That it's about our desire, not a demand. And our participation, not our prosperity. Now notice, they didn't get, give to get joy. They gave because of the joy they already possessed. Look at verse 5. 
Actually, continuing on in verse 5, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. And then again in verse 8, you can skip down to verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to, to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. See, giving is about the reality of our new relationship in Christ. Giving is about the reality of our new relationship in Christ. They gave themselves first to the Lord, then to us. If we give to God first, then he'll take care of the rest. If we think about having to give to a person, that's a problem. But when we give ourselves to God, we know that we have gain. See, God had begun a good work in them. And they committed themselves to partner with other believers in helping them out. And after they had made this commitment, they needed to finish it. That's another principle of giving. Look at verse 6. According, accordingly, we urge Titus, as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. See, generosity is about completing our commitment to God. If you have committed to giving a portion of your income, follow through with it. It's following through with what you started, finishing the race, enduring when times get tough. It's a question of priorities. We can make our hobbies priorities and shelling out $1,100 on a flat screen TV, but we won't give to God except a little amount. You know, the Israelites were notorious for not giving their, keeping their commitment to God. We can see that in Haggai chapter 1. Haggai chapter 1, verse 2 through 11. That's on page 791, if you have a pew Bible, where they were helping rebuild the Jewish temple. And that circumstances, some persecution had developed, and the people had slacked off in their commitment, and the, and the, the temple just laid there, half finished. And God speaks to them in verse 2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruin, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, and the grain, and the new wine, the oil, on what, ground brings, on, the, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and in all their labors. See, the Israelites had committed to giving to the completion of rebuilding the temple, but some opposition had developed, so they didn't do it anymore. And what's God saying is, you wonder why you're struggling? Do you wonder why you're going through such a hard time right now? It's because you're failing to give. To make God the priority. And that even though you feel like you're making enough money, even though you're, you have everything you seemingly need and you're not having joy in it, that's from God. God is saying you have money, you have what food you need, but you're not satisfied. You have a drink, but you're not filled up. 
You have clothes, but yet you're not warm. It seems like you're always at a loss. I'm reminded of my college roommate uh, from my time at Moody. I was speaking to him a few years ago, and um, he has six children. And he was talking about how they were struggling financially and how they'd been struggling. And he said, we thought we couldn't afford to give unto the Lord, so we didn't. And we were always struggling to make, make our bills. We couldn't get them done. But then we decided, and we were convicted of giving unto God, and we did. And then suddenly, all of our bills ended up being paid. See, because they honored God first. When we honor God first, then the rest of those other things will be taken care of. We must make sure that we do this. Now, we need to have the right priority as we give. Priorities directly influence practice. We need to put the right habits into place. That means we need to have a godly practice in regards to our giving. And look at the godly, the godly practices in regards to our giving. I want you to flip forward to me with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 uh, and look through verse 1 through 4. That's on page 9. 62. And Paul, by the Spirit, says to the church at Corinth, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, what can we learn from that? First of all, we see that, and Paul tells the Corinthians that our giving should be primary. Primary. Notice, it was on the first day of the week. It wasn't to be, it was the idea of if they got paid daily or if they got paid weekly, it was the first part of their week that God was to be the priority and that they needed to make sure that their giving was primary. Now, we can see this brought out in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, on page 528. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 through 10, on page 528. And we see there, as the scripture says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the firstfruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. If you want to give, I mean you want to get, then you need to give. And it's not just giving, I'm not talking about getting cars or major wealth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about understanding that God will take care and his blessing will be upon you. God will be favoring you. Notice they did it every week. They were to put something aside. As I said before, they probably got paid daily, as we see within the scripture, maybe at times weekly, uh, which is why they were to do it each week, which means that their giving was to be planned. Planned. It was primary it was to be planned. They were to do it, not just this in the moment. Now, God might speak to us in the moment to give. But here, they planned to give. They budgeted to give. You need a budget. Notice also that the gift was personal. It was personal. Notice the words, each of you. Each of you. Not just some of you. Not those that are wealthy among you. Each of you was to give. For all, I mean, to give their offering. It doesn't matter if your income is fixed, you're a college student or on disability, or if you have 20 kids. If you have any sort of income, then you need to personally give. Which leads me to my last point, that our generosity should be in proportion to our income. Proportion to our income. Now again, we come back to faith. 
it's about faith, not finances. But at the same time, we do see that if we were to be planning, it should be in proportion to our income. And we, at times, might be having called to give all that we have to live on, just as the widow gave her two mites. Would God call you to do that? People say, well, surely God wouldn't call you to do that. I wouldn't say that. God might call you to do that. He could call me to do that. He could call any of us to do that. Just as the same as God might call us to go to the furthest reaches of the world. God call, God's call upon us is not just a safe call. The gospel is dangerous. I don't know why we think that it's safe. It's safe for the whole family. He might call us to die. Have you thought of that? He calls us to die to ourselves. To die to our comforts. Not to find a way to Christianize them. To die to them. For his glory. I like what Peter Marshall said about giving. Been the chaplain in the Senate. He says, Give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. So let me ask you that question. Which is it for you? Would you rather have God to, and would you rather give according to your income or have God? Make your income according to your giving. I want to close with a story that I read recently about a guy who was giving, uh, and he gave $1,000 per week in the offering when he was first saved. Later on in his Christian walk, he went back to his pastor and said, Pastor, when I was first saved, I was so excited about Jesus Christ, so excited about the Word. I was being so blessed. I was growing so much. There were so many changes taking place in my family when I was first saved, and I wanted to thank God with all that I had because of the amount of money he allowed me to make. I gave $1,000 every week to the offering because I was just so thankful for his goodness. However, the more that I grew, the less that I gave. Now I'm not appreciating his grace anymore, and I only give $50 a week even though I make more money. He said, Pastor, pray for me. The pastor said, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, right now, my brother is in trouble because you know when he was first saved, he loved you enough to give $1,000. But now he's going downhill, and he only gives you $50. My prayer right now, Lord, is that you take him back to when he was making only a few dollars. See, I've seen that actually happen. I've seen folks who have honored God when they were broke, and they got money, and they pulled back. They honored God when they were in the lowest part of the low. And yet when it got back, when they started getting on their feet and and giving and getting more, they gave less. And then God took them right back to where they were before because they were too dumb. And we've all done this. I've been this myself to get the lesson that we have to honor God first. And we say, well, it's my money. No, it's not. It's God's because he gave you the ability to even get it. The fact that you have that ability is from him. You are a steward of what he's entrusted to your care. My question for you is, are you a faithful steward? And the question for me is, am I a faithful steward? Are we faithful stewards for what God has given unto us in our time, our talent, and our treasure? My last question is, is the same as that I had at the very beginning. Is money for you a tool or is it a tyrant? What's keeping you from being obedient to what God has called you to do, called us to do? We need to give back to him what is already his, knowing that he has given us so much in and through Christ for the glory of his name. He has given us the greatest treasure that heaven had to offer. What are we giving back? 
unto him. Not to earn it, but as a loving response for how much he's blessed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you've done in our midst and what you are doing. Lord, we thank you for our brothers and sisters uh, that are here today. Um, Lord, we thank you that we are one church, that we might be different campuses, that we, we have what unites us is greater than what could ever separate us. Lord, may we always be reminded of the new life that we have in and through you, that you have called us from our sin and saved us. And Lord, for those who are struggling because they have not continued to give and been faithful to you, Lord, I pray that you convict them. I pray you convict us all to look at you and look at this perspective on generosity differently. That We might give unto you what is already yours, knowing that we have the greatest treasure in Christ that heaven had to offer. And may we live our life in the reality of that truth. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.